Welcome to this episode of Tea with Twiggy. It's great to have you here. This is a podcast where I catch up with friends and people that I find fascinating. I check that they're doing okay and ask for tips to help us stay at home more comfortable. This week I have a good chat and a couple with the wonderful Giles Brandreth, who knows so much about everything. I've known Giles for over 20 years and it's great to catch up with him at this time. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Giles Brandreth, hello. Hello, Twiggy. Thank you for joining me for tea. It would have been lovely to have met face to face, but obviously because of the circumstances, we are doing a virtual tea. We so are. I've got I've got a hot um, English breakfast tea with a slice of lemon, some sliced ginger, and hot water and honey. What have you got? I've got something provided by Yogi Tea. It's uh-huh. a natural natural happiness is total relaxation. It says, but of course I'm I'm not totally relaxed. I no, been don't totally... go to sleep on me. Well, no. <laughs> I haven't been totally relaxed since this thing began. To be honest. Uh, apparently the adrenaline is rushing in all of us. I'm I'm sleeping, but I'm having very vivid dreams. Anyway, oh, I'm having this organic tea, and I'm also having some Victoria sponge because I Ooh. I love tea. It's my favourite meal. I'm hoping is we're going to talk entirely about tea. I'm having Victoria sponge, and uh, uh, I could have had um, wonderful coffee and walnut cake, but I chose Ooh. the Victoria sponge because I'd already started on that, and because. I just love it. But I'm also, uh, I've got some cucumber sandwiches. Oh, you little devil. I yeah. hope I'm, I'm being good. But yeah. if listen, if you go on having tea like that every afternoon through this, you'll end up a big round person. <laughs> I've, put on, I've put on seven pounds already. Have it's you? A lot. But so it, it's comfort food. I, I've been dreaming, curiously, about my parents for the first time oh. in a long while. Oh. And... My father died oh, 40 years ago. My mother only died, uh, well, 10 years ago at, at the age of 96. But I've been dreaming about her reading me bedtime stories. This tells you everything you need to know, really. Uh, and <laughs> when I was a little boy, she used to give me as my comfort food Marmite and tomato sandwiches, brown bread, butter, Marmite, and then very thin slivers of tomato with the, with the crusts cut off uh, and cut into little triangles. And that was my comfort food. So I think what I'm doing at the moment is I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not quite sucking my thumb, but I am regressing into childhood. Uh, well, my comfort food like that is when I used to come home from school, when I was, you know, between the ages. It was, it was grammar school, actually. And I used to make uh, toast a bit of white bread, because we didn't really have brown bread then, but white bread and butter it with thin slices of banana and then sugar on the top. Oh, I love that. That's what, oh, but that's, that's good. You don't need so much of the sugar now, but banana. No. Well, I, 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 do it now, I do it now with honey. Oh, I simply mash the banana onto the toast. Yeah. I just adore that. Oh, well, we're all... Uh, well, now, we, could, we could talk about this all day, couldn't we? Now, before you start yeah. on something i want to ask you because i just saw you were really meant to be appearing very soon with dame judy dench we should have on been on stage at this very moment with dame oh, judy at this very moment tell me about it 
How it came about is this. I, I have admired Dendry Dench since I was a little boy. I went to the Old Vic Theatre in about 1960 to see my first Shakespeare play. It was Romeo and Juliet, starring Judy Dench, the young Judy Dench as Juliet. She was in her early 20s. John Stride, do you remember him? He played. Yes, I do, very much. Alec McCowan was Mercutio. Peggy Munch was the nurse. And I went to a school's matinee, children and their parents. My parents were there. And as chance would have it, Judy Dench's parents were there. And Judy Dench ran onto the stage and came up towards, as Juliet, young and beautiful in a kind of white nighty. And she ran towards the nurse, played by Peggy Mount. And her opening line was, where are my mother and my father, nurse? And from the sixth row of the stalls, a voice called out, here we are, darling, in row G. <laughs> That's hysterical. And I, I remember that from 60 years ago. And oh. I met Judy Dench much more recently. And she said, well, let's do a charity show. She was wanting to, in fact, she was helping me out. I, I must get this right. A couple of years ago, one of my grandchildren, I have seven grandchildren, I have three children and seven grandchildren. Oh. People often say to me, Giles, why are you working at your age? I say to them, I have three children and seven grandchildren. I've discovered, <laughs> I've discovered over the years that money is the one thing keeping me in touch with them. I need to work. I need the money. Anyway. <laughs> One of these grandchildren, who I'm happy to tell you is now 100% well, but a couple of years ago, when he was a little baby, uh, he spent almost a year in Great Ormond Street oh, with no. a childhood cancer. And I, when he, as it were, recovered and he's had, you know, three months and six months and nine months, they, you stay longer and longer before you have to go back and all is well, which is why I can tell Thank you this God. story. And I thought they've been so brilliant. I must do something. And I thought, let's raise some money. And I thought, we'll do a show. And then I thought, I want to raise a lot of money. So let's do a show with a with a star. And I Googled on the computer, who is the, who is the most popular actor in the world? The most loved. And up came the name Judy Dench, the of most course. loved actor in the world. Of course, being of my generation, I think of her as an actress. But anyway, she was there as the most loved actor actress in the world. So I got hold of Judy Dench and I said, apparently you're the most loved actress in the world. And I, I told her about my grandson. She of course I'll do a show. Aww. And we took the Theatre Royal Haymarket and I did this show with Judy Dench talking to her about her career. And we raised so much money that day just on ticket sales. You know, yeah, I bet. How fabulous. Tens of thousands. And what was amazing about Judy is that she came to this brilliant show. It was, oh, a couple of years ago now. It was on St. Patrick's Day. And we couldn't get to the theatre because there was a St. Patrick's Day parade. And so she, she had to be dropped off in Soho outside a strip joint. Anyway, <laughs> and it wasn't just raining on March the 17th that year. There were hailstones. Anyway, this lady, who is now 85, so she must have been 83 then, got out of her car, hailstones, outside a strip joint, and I said, I'm so sorry. Oh, she said, what fun! Oh, this is marvellous. We shall go through a walk through Soho. And we walked in the rain through Soho, and everybody who stopped her to take a selfie, she said yes. She signed mm -hmm. every autograph. We then went and did the show, and after the show, there must have been 100 people standing outside in the drizzle. She could have slipped out of the side door into her car and gone away, but no, she went out into the rain and stayed there in the rain, signing the autographs until she'd signed every single one. She is truly a saint. She has this thing, she's a CH, which stands for Companion of Honour. That's right. 
You may make the grade, Dame Judy, oh. Dame Piggy Wonder. <laughs> I don't think so. But there are not many of these uh, companions of honour. No, but she is extraordinary. And she really has earned it. So we did this a few times for charities of different kinds, raised lots of money. And then uh, a producer came to us and said, you've developed this show, you now seem to be singing songs and doing bits of Romeo and Juliet, even though you're both past it. Uh, Should we put this on in town? And they decided to put it on at the Bridge Theatre. Mm-hmm. And it was we were literally going to open the week this lockdown thing began. Oh. So we are now hoping to do it at a later date. Oh, I'm sure you will, because people will be longing. Because I think, didn't you say that you'd sold lots of tickets already? Oh, we'd sold, completely sold out. Yeah, I bet you had. Um, we had to send back 10,000 tickets or whatever, or more. Oh, wow. Oh, I'm sorry, because, I, I, well, we'd have been there cheering you on. <laughs> you'd have enjoyed it. Now, I want to talk about you a little bit. Oh, why? <laughs> now, I don't know if I've ever told you this. You've been part of my life since I was a schoolboy. Mm-hmm. I remember first becoming conscious of you in the 1960s during my gap year. I went to, I, was, I visit, was visiting prisons. I was very interested in prisons and prison reform. And during my gap year, I traveled around America visiting prisons. And I went to one in Huntsville, Texas. And I was shown around prison cells. And in almost every prison cell, they had a photograph of you. Really? I'm amazed. You were the pin-up. <laughs> the pin-up of this particular prison. Isn't that amazing? That's hysterical. When, I was, when they discovered I was English because the way I spoke, they said, oh, do you know her? Do you know that Twiggy? Oh, my God. English, you must know Twiggy. And I said, I, I don't. I said, but I, I hope one day I will. But that's so funny because you'd think with prisoners they they'd go for more like the Marilyn Monroe. And actually, when I first went to New York and I got you know and I went in, I came in after the Beatles, and so there was a lot of press about it. And I was on television in all the chat shows. And I got into a taxi in New York, and I was sitting in the back, and I could feel that I could see the taxi driver looking at me. And he suddenly said, oh, you're you that little girl from England. You're that twiggy, aren't you? And I went, yes. And he went, well, you're no Marilyn Monroe, are you? <laughs> I said, no. <laughs> well, at the same prison, I promise you, not only were there pictures of you, but people had drawn amusing graffiti on the prison walls. One of the graffiti read... Um, don't let Twiggy starve. They were anxious. <laughs> Twiggy, don't let Twiggy starve. Well, there was there was a badge. I actually David oh. Putnam found one for me um, years ago, and it said, um, "Don't feed Oxfam, feed Twiggy." <laughs> how what, how Twiggy was it that you became in the nineteen sixties world famous? There were lots of models. There were lots. You know, there was swinging sixties. There was you know, swinging London. There was Carnaby Street. How was it that you came separated from the crowd and became somebody who was famous in American prisons? I have n- I, you know, I can't answer that. It was, um, I was in the right place at the right time. I did, if you look at the models of that time, I didn't look anything, you know, I was this kid, I was a school kid. I was a mod, I was obsessed by the clothes, the mod clothes of the day. I did all that makeup myself. I, I had a rag doll and I copied my rag doll. 
And I think, you know, when Mary Quant and Barbara Hulanicki, who was who did Bieber, yeah. came along and were doing teenage clothes, all the models were a bit, you know, because most of the models were that much older than me. And they were gorgeous. I mean, Shrimpton, who was my idol, Jean Shrimpton, but she was this ethereal, long-legged beauty with long brown hair. I mean, I did well, you know what I looked like. I had that little boyish cut, a little boyish figure, very skinny legs. Although I ate like a horse. I mean, I always used to come out and say, I don't diet because I got blamed for kind of people being anorexic. But I always, I always did eat and I still do. I love my food. But why it took off the way it did, I have, I have no answer really. It was, uh, you know, uh, luck of the draw, I suppose. I think I just looked very different. And also, most models didn't really speak. But when I went to America, because of, you know, what, what had happened and what I looked like, they had me on all the chat shows. And when I started being interviewed, I think they found me funny. So I, I kind of... I, I had a personality that they caught on to, and I think it just kind of snowballed, really. But I don't really know. I mean, I, I got lucky, I think. <laughs> well, people, anyone listening to this who wasn't around in the 60s, you will not believe how huge she was at that time. She was tiny, but she was huge. And I became a bit obsessed with you at that time. And I was very lucky in the late 1960s, I met some of the glamorous young women of that era. That's when I first, 1969, I first met our mutual friend, Joanna Lumley. Oh, the gorgeous Joe. Uh, and indeed, I can tell you that uh, Jane Asher uh-huh. was the first truly beautiful woman to sleep in my bed. Ooh. Maddeningly, I was elsewhere at the time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I say this could have got libelous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I met her in 1968. And she was she was at um, she was in Oxford appearing in a play and came uh-huh. to the ball at my college and was exhausted and needed someone to somewhere to kip and uh, I lent her my my room and my bed oh. and I went about my whatever I was doing around that but I really wanted to meet you and the reason I wanted to meet you was a because I loved you and b because quite soon after this period you appeared in a musical film musical of the boyfriend. I did. And I had got to know Sandy Wilson, who created The Boyfriend. This was, again, uh, younger viewers, this is a history lesson. This is Twiggy takes you through the second half of the 20th century. In the (laughs) 1950s, the second most successful musical of the 1950s before the arrival of My Fair Lady, the most successful was called Salad Days. It ran the longest-running musical in the history of the world until Andrew Lloyd's Bank came along. Anyway, the other most successful musical was uh, The Boyfriend, written by Sandy Wilson, who I got to know and like. And he then told me they're going to make a film of it. I said, oh, how exciting. I said, who have they got? He said, you'll never believe it. You will never believe it. Somebody called Twiggy. What, <laughs> what sort of a name is that? <laughs> to be honest, I don't know if you, if you ever knew this. When he first heard it was going to be you, he was appalled. Well, I, I, I don't think he was very happy with the film, in all, in all honesty. I'll be honest about it. I didn't, I don't think I ever got to meet him, or if I did, it was only once. Oh, really? I don't think he was very pleased with Ken or me. You know, because originally, I'm sure you know this, I mean, you know all these facts much more than I do, but, you know, that when they originally did the musical on stage, um, 
I think I'm right in saying it was Julie Andrews did it in London and then took it to New York. And then they did a script of it for a film. And Julie Andrews was going, quite rightly, to star in the film of The Boyfriend. And for whatever happened, it never happened. You know, who knows? Money, I don't know. Or she was busy doing My Fair Lady or something. Um, and finally, when it got round to Ken doing it, doing the film, and that happened because I, I'd met Ken in 1968 about doing... I didn't know him. I knew of him because he was so famous. He was like the hottest film director in London, in England, wasn't he? Mm. And I met him. He wanted to do a musical of uh, William Faulkner's The Wishing Tree. And it's about a, a, a magical kind of wizard type man who travels around with a very young girl. And he was interviewing me to be the young girl. I know it sounds, I don't think, I don't think it was salacious, but. <laughs> But anyway, it never got that far. But that's how I met Ken. We became friends, him, his wife, and Shirley and he and, and I. And um, I'd been about two years into that friendship. I'd been to see a revival of The Boyfriend on stage with um, Cheryl Kennedy, was it? Oh, Cheryl Kennedy. Yeah, she yeah. was brilliant. And I thought it was the best thing I'd ever seen. I got so excited. Had dinner with Ken and Shirley the next night. And um, Ken said, you know, where, what have you been doing? I said, oh, God, we went to see this show last night. It's absolutely bloody brilliant. It's called The Boyfriend and it's all 20, because I love the 1920s. It's always been my favourite period. And amazing songs and you've got to go and see it. And by the end of the evening, after a lot of champagne that Ken had drunk, um, he suddenly said, I'll do the film of it and you can play Polly Brown, which is the lead character. Yeah. And I went, oh, oh, okay. And we went home, went to bed, got up the next day. I just thought, oh, you know, he'd had too much to drink because I'd never even dreamt of kind of being an actress or doing all that. And um, he rang me the next day and said, what do you think? And I said, you know, I've never done anything like that before. Do you think I can do it? And he said, of course you can. I'm going to send you off to singing lessons and dance class. And a year later, we made the film. Now, just tell me, what was Ken Russell like? I, I mean, I knew him, and people found him both impossible and wonderful. What was he like to know? Well, to me, he was the most wonderful person on earth. He changed my life. Because up until meeting him, I was modelling, and I, obviously I was a very successful model, and I was 18 years old, so I could have gone on modelling probably for another 15, 20 years easily. Um but when I met Ken and he gave me the chance to star in this film, The Boyfriend, I always liken it to going into the secret garden. It was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And I was very nervous and very timid about doing it because I was quite shy then. But because I had his faith and his belief in me, it gave me the courage to do it. And it was an amazing experience. And he was wonderful. He was my mentor, really. He really was. I'd encourage people who haven't seen this film to dig it out and find it. It must be on Netflix or one of the or YouTube or yeah, something. Yeah, you can get it on DVD, actually. It, it's called 
The Boyfriend by Sandy Wilson. It stars Twiggy, directed by Ken Russell, who you will think of as the man who directed films, the D.H. Lawrence films, some uh, the films about great composers. He was an art house director. Also, he could have, uh, he, t- he touched violence, he touched sex. This is an innocent film, but it's made in a modern way. And the reason that Sandy Wilson was uncomfortable with it is that he was a traditionalist. He wanted... Yeah, no, I totally get it. Um, I totally get it. And it's a wonderful, wonderful fancy forgetting. I'll play Madame Arcati this time round. <laughs> I do remember also meeting you a few years later in New York when you were appearing in a show put together by Sheridan Morley. Am I right? You are. Well, well it, yeah, it was it, the Sheridan Morley version was called Noel and Gertie, and it was about Noel Coward and Gertrude Lawrence. And then he gave um, my husband, Lee, Lee Lawson, the permission to rejig it for New York and for me. And mm-hmm. so he took, he gave Lee permission to, you know, put in different songs and different pieces of text. Um, and we did our song version song. in New York. What did you call Sorry? your version? What did you if call your If Love Were All. Oh, lovely. Yeah. If, hey, oh. Oh, I love that song. Look, uh, when I next come to tea, I'll give you warning. But later in your series, you keep taking people to tea. When you're when you're scraping the barrel, neither all gonna have the same guests again. Now we've been doing it for so many months. When I next come, and I'll uh, I will ask you beforehand to get a song ready, and we might do a duet together. Okay. Uh, one of these shows, either a Noel Coward, don't put your daughter on the stage, Mrs. Worthington. <laughs> who did you have as your Noel Coward? Um, Harry Groner. Oh. It was interesting, you see, because we did it in New York, off-Broadway. Yes, in a small was... theatre. I came to see it called the Lorelei or something. Lucille Hotel. Yes. Beautiful little theatre. And so we had to cast our Noel Coward from New York. And we rang, Lee rang all the English actors that he thought would be good for the role. Roger Reese being our top oh, choice, the cool. dear, lovely, not lo- not any longer with us, sadly, Roger Reese. But he was busy. And we had the theatre book, so we had to take it. As you know, if you've got a theatre book, you have to grab it, especially in New York, because they disappear. Another show comes in. And one of my, our dearest, oldest friends, Tony Walton, who designed The Boyfriend, he was the designer and on the boyfriend, the film, and and oh, oh, you know, he's won Oscars and Tonys galore for his sets and designs. Um, he's English also, and um, Lee rang Tony up and said, you know, you know, do you know anybody who could play Coward? And he said, this actor called um, Harry Groner, who we'd seen in Crazy for You, you know, the musical, but he's very all American boy, and we were concerned. You know, because Coward was so English and, you know. But anyway, Harry came and auditioned for Lee and he was, I thought he was brilliant. Do you remember how brilliant he was? I do remember. I, I, I loved it. Now tell me, Twiggy, over the years you've met so many show business people. Who, yeah. What is the most memorable show business encounter you have had? Oh, my goodness. The one that you don't need to have known them well, but the person who you think, wow. Oh, Yes, oh, go for it. My, I met my hero. How could I forget? My hero, my hero, my hero. When I was 
21 and I went to LA to um, promote the boyfriend, the film. Mm-hmm. And we went to MGM, who were uh, the, putting out the film, and they said, um, you know, you're going to do this interview and this interview. Now, is there anyone you'd like to meet in Hollywood? You know, is there anyone? And I said, oh, my God, I'd love to meet Fred Astaire, <sighs> who I loved and adore. I still do. I worshipped him. And and the room went very quiet. And they said, I think they thought I was mad. I was like 20 years old. And Fred at that time was about 72. <laughs> and they said, isn't there one younger you'd like to meet? And I said, not really. I just love to, I'm obsessed with Fred Astaire. Anyway, they, they said, look, he's really private. And, you know, he's retired. And, and I said, oh, listen, I wouldn't intrude on him. But you asked me who I'd like to meet. And he's my hero. Anyway, we went back to the hotel. And about three hours later, the phone rang and there'd been a woman in the room when I was telling this story about my love of Fred Astaire. And she'd worked on all the Fred and Ginger movies and she'd overheard the story and she rang Fred and I got invited to tea. Well done. Oh, my goodness. This is a game, a chain game that we can play. You've taken tea with Fred Astaire. I'm now Uh taking tea with you. So at one move... (laughs) I'm taking tea with Fred Astaire. That's right. That's brilliant. He was, so, you know, sometimes you meet people you love and adore and they're a bit of a letdown, but I have to say he was so gentlemanly, so modest, and I have to say nobody walks across a room like Fred Astaire. I, I'll never forget when he opened the door in the far corner and he walked across towards me, and that walk, do you remember that walk? And he had he had cream trousers on with a tie tied round his waist oh I mean he was so gorgeous so gorgeous and then about a year later we went back to um, LA to promote something I can't remember and we took Fred out to dinner and Mm -hmm. we went to a kind of it was like a Polynesian restaurant in Beverly Hills and we sat at the table and you know he was a very shy quiet man and everything and he didn't really drink but I kept seeing that do you remember those drinks they used to do in coconut halves with sparklers and umbrellas and everything and I kept seeing them go by and I I said what do you think they are and um and the waiter came over and he said man that's a Mai Tai and I said oh I'd like one so and Fred said oh I'll have one too (laughs) so we all had a Mai Tai and as you know you know it's rum I think, isn't it? Rum. And they were really strong. So we were a bit squished when we came out. We weren't drunk, but we were a bit squishy. And as we walked down Rodeo Drive to the car, Fred started to tap dance. And he tap danced down the road. I mean, it's like, oh, my God. If I I did, we didn't have mobile phones then. I mean, can you imagine if I'd have got that on camera? He 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 tap danced down the street. He did a double pirouette and put his hands up to the sky and said, "Hollywood, I love you." And when we got back to the hotel, I said to my my partner, "I said, can you imagine people driving by at that point? Because Fred had been retired for about fifteen years by then, saying, you know, I just I think I just saw Fred Astaire tapping down the street with Twiggy." <laughs> Well, it's everybody's dream come true. I can't believe (laughs) I'm I'm taking tea with the girl who danced Fred Astaire. Well, I exaggerate. I I didn't actually dance with him, but I was standing next to him. Yes, you trotted (laughs) along behind. I was. Well done, you. That's fantastic. 
He was divine. He was absolutely divine. I love people who are, and also clearly was very courteous, infinitely courteous, oh, wasn't he? The, the 100% gentleman. I was, somebody was asking me the other day, who was the, the most charming person that I'd ever met? Uh-huh. It's a long list. Uh, and if I'm going to include the men rather than the women, because I don't want to you know, have to choose between you and Joanna Lumley, it would be invidious. <laughs> um, but uh, top of my list would be two people, one of whom will maybe surprise you, Vincent Price. Did you ever meet Vincent oh, Price? Oh, yes. Yeah, he was gorgeous. He was gorgeous and so charming. The other, of course, and I think people know how charming he was, was Roger Moore. Yeah, I didn't know him well, but I I got to meet him a couple of times. Oh, I was lucky enough to know Roger reasonably well because at my school, when I was a little boy, at my school there was a maths teacher called Major Douch, and he'd been in the army, and his best friend in the army had been Roger Moore. They were in the army together. And so Roger Moore used to come down to my school, and he was already famous. He was in a TV series called The Saint. That's right. Oh, yes. it was huge, huge, The Saint. Huge, huge. I loved it. Almost as big as you were. It was huge. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I kept I kept in touch with with Roger Moore, having been a little boy. And when I wanted to be an actor, he said, "Oh, I'm Giles." I said, "I'd like to be a film star, Roger, like you." He said, "Really, Giles? Really?" I said, "Well," and he was so self-deprecating. Roger, he always used to say he only had two looks to offer the camera: left eyebrow or right eyebrow. I said, "Look, <laughs> it's that easy, Roger." He's, I said, "You show me." And Roger Moore gave me a masterclass on how to raise my eyebrows. And if our listeners find it hard to believe, check out my website, Giles with a Y, Brandreth.net, and go to the picture gallery or somewhere in there, and you'll find pictures of me and Roger Moore with him trying to teach me how to raise my eyebrows. And he managed to get me to get my left eyebrow very successfully, as you can see. Yeah. Uh, my left eyebrow, because we're zooming this as well as talking to each other, my left eyebrow goes up really quite effectively in the, in the true Roger Moore style. I could get the left eyebrow. I could not get the right eyebrow up. And after weeks of this masterclass from Roger Moore, I went back to him. I said, Roger, I've got the left eyebrow up. I cannot get the right eyebrow up. What is going wrong? And he said to me, Giles, it's very simple. It seems you're half the actor I am. (laughs) That's brilliant. But you're right. I can do my right eyebrow, but I can't do my left. Yeah. Well, so between us, that's why we'd have to be a double act. That's why when we're going to revive the boyfriend and um, the Mel Coward show, this is the beginning of, oh, forget, move over, Judy Dench. I've got Twiggy. You know. That is so The second funny. most loved person in the world. So how, are you, how are you coping, Twigs, during this? Well... The hardest thing for for Lee and I, which I'm sure is the same for you and your wife, is not seeing our children and our grandchildren. Mm. I find, I mean, when I realised that when they said our age group have got to self-isolate, that was fine because we're very lucky. We live in a lovely flat, a big flat. We've got a garden square that we can use if we were to do our little bit of exercise every day. but not seeing my daughter and my stepson and, and and the love of my life, which is my daughter's little girl who's five years old, who I, you know, normally would go over a couple of times a week and see my daughter and Joni and play or pick her up from school. That's been the hardest for me. Um, but But we do Skype every day. That helps a lot, thank God. 
we've got that. At least I can see her and we can talk to each other and I read her stories. And But that's I find that really, really tricky. But apart from that, Lee's gone cleaning mad. <laughs> well done. I got up this morning at eight o'clock and I couldn't find him. And he was in the office. He'd, he'd already got one shelf down because he did all the bookshelves in here behind me. Mm. And we've got bags and bags of stuff to take to charity when they open again. But um, how about you? How are you coping? I'm not doing any cleaning yet. Hasn't, hasn't got that desperate, I can tell you. Um, well, like I you, bet you're writing, aren't you? I'm, well, this is it. I had the show with Dame Judy planned, and then I was going to go on a tour, 32 dates around the country. That was, as it were, my spring and summer, doing film reports for the one show, uh, doing a television series with Sheila Hancock. All of that put oh. on hold. So because I, I think I must be a workaholic, my screensaver is a quotation from the book of Proverbs, the Bible, and it reads as follows. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a vagabond and want like an armed man. I think I have been obsessed with working all my life. And I'm one of those people who feels, and I think apparently there are a lot of men like this, they have no validity unless they're working. That's mm-hmm. So... Uh, and also, I think it's probably good to try and have a routine. Since we're yeah. stuck in here, um, I've gone on working. So every day I'm sitting at my desk and I'm, I'm writing another book. My wife said to me, another book? Just, just does, does the world need another book by you, darling? I, <laughs> I really <laughs> Well, it doesn't. We know it doesn't need another book by me, but it's going to get one. <laughs> so there we are. <laughs> What is the premise of this new book? Well, this new book... I, is it a novel? No, I've done a lot of novels. People don't I know you have. Novelist, but I've written a lot of novels. And I, my last two successful books, one was about words and language, and the other was a book that's had a big success this last year and is still in the bestseller list called Dancing by the Light of the Moon. It's I was going to ask you about that, it, the it, poems, it's, yeah? It's a book of poetry. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's poems to learn by heart. I've discovered it's particularly good for people of our vintage and older. Mm-hmm. Keeps the synapses going. Learning poetry by heart is good for you. Working with people, knowing people like Judy Dench, uh, 85, still learning her lines. The great dame Maggie Smith, 85, still learning her lines. Sheila Hancock, I'm working with, 87, still learning their lines. They keep their minds going by learning yeah. lines. So I love poetry. And so I've had a success with that. And my publisher said, oh, well, you could do another book like that, words. But actually, why don't you tell us some of your stories? And so I'm doing a sort of humorous uh, autobiographical book about my early days. I don't know if I'll get as far as that prison in Texas where I first discovered you, <laughs> but I've now got the incentive to do so. And that is so funny. I have to steal your Fred Astaire story. Uh, it's so <laughs> I'm I have, that has already been in print. I put that in my book. Okay. You, you can borrow it. I've got, I've got your book somewhere, actually. I've got, I must get it out again. I must dig it out, dust it down. Yeah. But is it true that you've learned all the poems in your poetry book? I've been trying to. Uh, it is a good discipline. I like short, sharp poems. My father loved ruthless rhymes. There was somebody called Harry Graham who wrote ruthless rhymes. <laughs> Late last night. I slew my wife, laid her on the parquet flooring. I was loath to take her life, but I had to stop her snoring. (laughs) 
my father liked these naughty poems. Uh, and the short ones are good to start with because it gives you confidence. Be- yeah, because you think, oh, I've learned that. I've learned that. Anybody can learn two lines a day. I mean, I'll give you my favourite one, my favourite two-line poem. You could learn it instantly. Uh, repeat Go after me. There once was a man from Peru. There once was a man from Peru. Whose limericks stopped at line two. Whose limericks stopped at line two. That's the end of the poem. <laughs> That's it. And, and you've learnt it. Uh, the point I've is, learnt it. easily learn a two-line poem in a matter of moments. Uh, but if you can learn two lines a day, just learn two lines every day for a week. And within a week, you've learnt a sonnet. That's a brilliant idea. Well, you know, last time we saw you, which wasn't that long, because... You, do you, you know, we were going to do that lovely Q&A in um, Yorkshire in June, which has obviously been put on hold, and you were going to interview me. But you got, you were chatting to Lee, who has spent the last – my husband, Lee. Yep. Um, he spent the last year and a half, you know, writing his poetry book because he came across a folder about three years ago that he'd forgotten he had with poems that he'd been writing in the 60s and 70s. So he started to edit those down, and then he's been writing new ones. So do you remember you spent about half an hour talking to him about it? That was at the first night of a wonderful show starring David Mitchell, written by Ben Elton. Is this right? Am I remembering correctly? That's right. Um, Upstart Crow. Upstart Crow, which was hilarious. Hysterical. It's still hilarious, and then had to close. I know, I know. Ben, I, I spoke to Ben about it. He was devastated. But, you know, that's hit, hit everyone in, in our profession in the theatre. And I always I always think there must be so many actors, and not only actors, but people in the production who, you know, it was their big break of, you know, getting a great part or and then it's all gone away. But, listen, when this passes, which hopefully it will not too far in the distant future, Maybe they'll all come back. I don't know. If you've got 30 seconds, I'm just going to get a poem to read to you to finish off on because it's relevant okay. to what I want to say. Don't go. I'm not going anywhere. I can't go anywhere. <laughs> so I was going to say, we are so lucky, actually, you and I, because, yeah. you know, we are here. We've got a good companion to be with. We've got we loads of books to read. We've got everything on television you could possibly want. We've got... And I do, I'm doing jigsaws. You're, you're, oh, it's come to this, is it? I've always been obsessed with jigsaws. Oh, really? You, you and the Queen, you know. Oh, really? Oh, I thought we had something in common. And I know it's not the voice. <laughs> she doesn't sound quite like you, does she? Be quite funny if she did. Oh dear, I'm such a fan of the Queen's. Do you remember when we so met? So am I. We met at her also at her ninetieth birthday party, didn't we? We did. Your knowledge that day of history, because you know I know bits and pieces, but you would. Telling stories and the his, you know, the history of the royal family. I mean, it's amazing. You're so clever. I'm very impressed. As we say, we're, we've been the lucky ones, you and I. Uh, but there are lots of people out there who actually are going through hell, and we have to be so grateful to them. All the, I was thinking of the dustbin people today. Uh, I see the buses driving past my window, and I think all these guys driving the buses, aren't they brave and fantastic? And then to say nothing of the carers and the people in the hospitals. We have been so lucky, and we also are lucky with this new technology. This world of podcasts is fantastic. I do a podcast every week with my friend Susie Dent, and it's all about words and language. It's called Something Rhymes with Purple. 
And that's enabled us, these podcasts, this new technology, Zoom, to talk to our friends and family. And so I'm going to end, I'm going to say goodbye to you with a little short poem. I hope when we next meet, Twigs, it will be, well, we may meet, if this goes on for many years, we can meet on a regular basis, do songs and shows, work through different kinds of cake and sandwich and have tea together. But uh, meanwhile, let me give you my four favourite lines of poetry, I think, written by Hilaire Belloc. They're very easy to learn. They come from a poem of his called Dedicatory Ode. And they're lovely four lines. Introduced to me, to name drop, by Kenneth Williams. He sent me this little poem. When my father died, he wrote me a very sweet letter. Ken, he was a marvellous fellow. He sent me a very sweet letter, which basically he said, to endure is all. That's how he ended the letter. To endure is all. Just, you know, that's it. Endure if you can. And then inside the envelope were these four lines by Hilaire Belloc. From quiet homes and first beginning, out to the undiscovered ends, there's nothing worth the wear of winning but laughter and the love of friends. Oh, that's beautiful. So that's I feel beautiful. we've had a happy half hour laughing together over tea. We have. I could I could go on for hours, but we can't. But well, I hope we will. We'll turn off the podcast now and we'll get down to talking. <laughs> oh, tell you the truth about Twiggy and Fred Astaire. <laughs> they were squashed as they come. I mean, honestly, it was disgraceful. <laughs> if, you could, if you could see. <laughs> what I wanted to ask you, are you a cook? No. Oh. Unless you're volunteering to teach me. I No, no, I just wondered if you'd come up with any, because... Because we're having to use what's in our cupboards because oh, yes. we can't shop as much. I just wondered if you come up with some wonderful, oh, my, my easy ba- recipes for somebody. My baked beans on toast remains my signature dish. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fish finger sandwich, uh, and when you come round, we'll cut the crusts off. Um, oh, okay. Yes, that's what I do. And I'll, I'll also, make you a banana sandwich with sugar on. <laughs> I do a kind of version of a Welsh rabbit. A piece of toast okay. toasted, then cheese on top. Put it in the microwave for 40 seconds. Oh, why? That works brilliantly. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. But don't, don't you want it kind of brown on the top? Oh, well, put a bit of pepper on top of it. Oh, okay. <laughs> or a bit of marmite. <laughs> okay. And if you're getting really bored, Twiggy, after you've done yeah. the jigsaws, do, do you like marmite? I love it. Open the jar of marmite and take a spoon, okay? <laughs> take a scoop of, of marmite, put it on a plate, and with the back of the spoon... Tap the marmite, and if you tap it long enough, the marmite turns white. It doesn't. Is that true? Absolutely. Why? Don't ask me. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> no. I think it. on that note we have to finish. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to go find the marmite. Go to the larder, find that marmite, find that spoon. Uh, yeah. Well, that was brilliant. Thank you for having tea with me, Joe. I loved having tea with you. And next time we can make it a three-party, three-way tea. I've got Uri Geller's number. Oh, okay. <laughs> we'll phone him, and he can bend the cutlery. <laughs> <laughs> Have a lovely evening. I hope you enjoyed those wonderful anecdotes from Giles and I hope he's inspired you to learn some poetry. I'm certainly going to. And I also hope you can join me next week 
for the next episode. If you've enjoyed listening to Tea with Twiggy, please take a moment to give us a lovely five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people to find the show. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to this podcast so you auto-magically get the next episodes for free. And do tell all your friends and family about it too. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye. You just heard a stripped media production. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.